Good morning. morning. Welcome. We are really, really glad that you guys are with us today, glad that you're here. Um, We are looking at the book um, of Exodus, interesting book. And the reason we're looking at the book of Exodus um, is because I think it becomes kind of a roadmap for New Testament believers. Kind of funny, maybe, if you've never thought of that or, or heard of that. But we teed this up last week by Luke 9.31. And Luke 9.31 is where Jesus um, is high on a mountain called the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, and he's with Peter, James, and John. And they've done what these guys do in every serious spiritual moment. Who remembers? Fall asleep. That's exactly right. So these guys are sleepy. And Jesus um, is transfigured. So God shows up and he's essentially reflecting, putting light on Jesus, King Jesus, uh, saying that this is my son. And as he's doing that, out walks Moses and Elijah. Now Moses and Elijah aren't dead. They're merely relocated into eternity or heaven. That's exactly right. So they walk on out. And Jesus and Moses have this incredible conversation where they talk about Jesus' departure, which in Greek, who remembers, is... Exodus. That's exactly right. So hence, that's why we're in the book of Exodus, because Jesus um, was getting ready to lead his people, us, his his body eternal, past, present, and future, into an Exodus, which means um, out of slavery, um, through this transition period in the desert, and into the promised land. And that's really the heart, I think, that God has for every one of us as believers. So we started with Exodus 1 uh, last week, and we are going to jump in to Exodus 2 um, this week. And I love that you brought your paper Bible. Way to go. I'm a paper Bible fan, if you didn't know, because you can write little notes and you can circle things. And you can actually uh, tune your ear, um, or even the ears of your heart, into uh, the whisper of God. And there's, there's moments um, where I'm actually reading, or I'm going, or I'm even I'm sitting in worship like this, and I'll sense a little nudge or a little something in my heart, and, and I'll circle a verse and put a date by it, and it actually becomes almost a testimony um, of God's faithfulness over the years. I love a paper Bible. If you don't have one, there's one on that table out there with your name on it. It's a one-year Bible. Um, And that is a great, uh, even a discipline that I've called us as a church to be in, reading the one-year Bible. And I'd also invite you into what I was saying just a minute ago, which is to begin to think about beginning your day in um, worship, in praise. Not just in singing, but actually in ministering to King Jesus and giving him praise. No matter how bad it is, no matter how dark it is, choose to bring a sacrifice of praise. Yeah? Amen. Okay. Um, So I'm in Exodus 2, if you're taking notes. Um, A lot of this is also coming from Acts 7, 17 through 41. Do I need to repeat that for anybody? Acts 7, 17 through 41. It's also coming from Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 29. I'm not going to read those, but it's just just so you know, that's where a lot of the New Testament information on Moses is coming from. I'd encourage you to read it because they're both just outstanding passages. Um, So, uh, before we start reading then, let me remind you of a couple of things. And, you know, I have an echo. Do y'all hear me? I hear me echoing. Maybe it's just me. I don't know where Daniel is. Or Anyway, I'll just listen to my echo. I sound kind of funny. Thank you, Patrick. Um, Okay, so a couple just reminders before we jump into Exodus 2. Um, we're in, the the Israelites are in uh, days of suffering, so they stayed too long in Egypt, and now they've become, who remembers? Slaves. They're now slaves, and their uh, Exodus 1, 13 
14 actually talks about um, the Egyptians were ruthless to them. Um, they, they treated them ruthlessly, and Pharaoh has, uh, has even ordered the genocide of a nation. So Pharaoh has ordered, as baby uh, boys are born, that they take the baby boys, the infants, and they throw them into the Nile. And that's interesting because the Nile was the source of all life for the Egyptians, right? Egypt is in the... Desert, that's exactly right. So all life comes from the Nile. And so there's this Nile River Delta, and the Nile is like snowmelt coming off of Ethiopia and a couple other countries, but it's flowing on down. And so the Egyptians worshipped um, this river, the Nile. So they worshipped a god that was the god of the river Nile. And when Pharaoh makes this um, declaration that any baby boy that's born, they literally have to be cast into the Nile, he is um, picturally making um, sort of a reference to sacrificing these Hebrew male babies to the God of the Nile. Make sense? Okay, so that's kind of where we begin to um, tee up here. And then uh, you're, you're going to see help sort of coming from very unexpected places as we look at uh, chapter 2. And we're going to focus, though, primarily on how God shapes a man or a woman. Okay. How does God shape a man or woman is kind of the focus of what I'm looking at. And if, you, if I broke this into three sections, um, it would be section number one, Moses the man who thought he was somebody. Moses the man who thought he was somebody. Guess what section two is? Moses the man who learned he was nobody. Guess what section three is? Moses the man who learned what God can do. With the nobody. All right? So we're going to walk through those, we're going to walk through those three things. Um, so here we are. Let's start reading in Exodus 2. If you're scrolling, don't feel any condemnation, scroll away. All right, Exodus 2. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Right off the bat, we have uh, parents here, and it's very courageous, I think, that they're even willing to have kids. Because what do they know is going to happen? There's a 50-50 chance that that baby is going to be thrown where? In the Nile. So even the courage, right off the bat, you begin to think of what is it even like in that day and at that time to be married when you know, and then even the choice to bring kids into this world. And if you bring kids into this world, then you face uh, losing them through a, a horrific murder. I mean, you give birth to the baby, and then the baby is literally cast into the river. <clears throat> When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, fine child, this is really interesting. I'm not going to fully cross-reference Hebrews 11, but it says in Hebrews 11 and in Acts 7, this same word, fine. And if you look at the Hebrew, it actually is beautiful. So Moses was shockingly beautiful. I mean, Moses was this absolutely beautiful baby. It, it two New Testament books and this Old Testament book, and it, it says he was fair and pleasing to God. So he's this beautiful young uh, baby, and it, and it says, um, uh, saw that he was a fine child. So Moses' mom sees that he's a fine child, and she hid him for three months. Now, let's just talk uh, quickly about that. In these days, um, in the land of Goshen, or, or if you, even if you were living in a tent, um, there would be a section of the tent or a section of the house that would be reserved for uh, the woman, only the woman. And so the man, no man in the family can enter into that female section of the, of the tent. Now, guess where the little baby would have slept? Yeah, in the little, little female area of the tent. So the baby would have slept in there, and, and generally speaking, the baby would have stayed in that area of the tent or the house, and it would be brought out during the day, right? Now, uh, at night, when the baby cries, I'm sure the house or the whole tent, just like today, would hear what? 
the baby crying. Now, a couple of things that I actually read were um, there were many people who tried to hide their babies, and some of what the um, Egyptian soldiers would do is uh, during this time, because they didn't want anybody hiding babies, is they'd actually take Egyptian babies and they'd walk Egyptian babies into the Israelite households, and the Egyptian babies would, guess what they'd do? And when one baby hears another baby crying, guess what the other baby does? Okay, so they were literally finding babies and taking those boys and killing them. That, that, that's what's happening in this situation. But it is possible that Moses' mom could have hid him in that section of the house for those three months, never taking him out. Verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer. Now, let me, let me say something quickly here. Uh, our youngest, Ezra, um, has cried a lot. Is that fair? I mean, a lot. I think the first nine months, I don't think we hardly slept. Fair? True. Maybe more true than what I'm telling you. She's going to say, you really could emphasize that more. We, it was a difficult first uh, 9, 10, 11 months with little, little Ezra, my precious Ezra. Um, and he, when he cried at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or any time, there's some anxiety in the air. You know what I'm saying? There's some frustration. You're like, oh, please stop crying. And Abby and I are taking turns shaking Ezra like they were literally dancing with him. And I'm like, oh, my God. So, but there's, there's um, natural anxiety, I think, that happens in parents because the baby's saying, I need something when I cry. And you can feel inadequate. Or what does the baby need? Or how do I get this baby to quiet down? Or there's all sorts of things that erupt from that. But can you imagine the anxiety of a mom who knows if, she, if this little baby is heard that he's going to be killed? Can you imagine? This courageous woman, number one, who chose to have kids, number two, who chose to hide this beautiful little baby, and then number three, just dealing with the day-in, day-out anxiety that if uh, she doesn't do something right and this little guy squawks, it's going to cost his life. I mean, the anxiety of a mother to deal with that day-in and day-out, 24 hours a day, I can't even imagine. Verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him. It's like a little reed basket. And she coated it with tar and pitch, which would have waterproofed the bottom of this uh, basket. And then she placed the child in it. I love that Moses' mom did this. It is, it's, so, um, it, it is, it's so in the face of the enemy. Because remember how I told you? That Pharaoh, in order to, he, he enacted genocide over the Israelite people, and he told them to take the male babies and throw them in the... Where did she ultimately put the baby? In the Nile! I mean, she, I am like, oh, this woman, the absolute courage and faith of this mama that she would take... Uh, and in some ways, uh, she is um, uh, agreeing or acquiescing to the order that Pharaoh has given. And then in a very another way, she is just totally in Pharaoh's face. I'm going to throw him in the river, but I'm going to throw him in the river in his own little boat. <laughs> then she placed the child in it, the basket, and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Love this, verse 4. His sister stood at a distance. This is Miriam. We'll read more about her as we go on in the book of Exodus. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. We have Pharaoh's daughter. So uh, this daughter's dad, just, for, just helping you remember, has just issued that uh, the genocide would happen. Yeah? And she goes down to the river. All right, so she goes down. She probably has a whole entourage on with her. But Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbanks. 
And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. Now, the moment she looked at this baby, what would she have known? He was Jewish. It was clearly not an Egyptian baby. I mean, instantaneously, the moment that lid was lifted, she sees the baby crying. She would have known. So you get another courageous woman who's absolutely defying Pharaoh. Right here. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Acknowledged it. Acknowledged it right there. Then his sister, I love this verse. This is so good. So classic um, God. It's classic, the redemptive sort of thread that you can follow. But then his sister Miriam asked Pharaoh's daughter, she, she just can't, so, okay, we, we got to get this. So uh, Pharaoh's daughter is on the banks of the river. She's bathing. She's got all these attendants, and there's reeds along the both banks of the river because it's in this big Nile delta, and it's really wide at this spot in the river. And while they're there, they see this basket over in the bulrushes or the, or the reeds. And so they go over, and they pull this basket over, and they take the lid off, and it's this crying little baby. Now you have big sister. Is Graceland here? She's not. You can tell her about it. So you have big sister who's literally spying on baby brother from the bank, right? And then she sees Pharaoh's daughter take the lid off. She sees Pharaoh's daughter see that this is a little baby and he's crying. And she courageously comes out of the bushes. I mean, it's just, I love this. You get this, this, um, just this sort of legacy of courageous women here who are absolutely sort of taking a stand against uh, Pharaoh uh, for the things of God. So verse 7, then, then his sister Miriam asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? So she just waltzes out. Now, could Pharaoh's daughter have probably had this little girl killed? Absolutely. I mean, at, at this point in time, they could have done anything they wanted. It already says they abused them and treated them harshly and treated the whole people of God um, horribly. And M- Miriam's courage to come out of the bushes and come talk to this lady and, and take care of her little brother. I love the heart you see there for a little brother. So the mo- or, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, says, yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got who? Is that brilliant? I mean, I mean, can you imagine the mama's heart putting the baby in a basket? Can you imagine putting your baby in a basket and sticking them in the intercoastal waterway and just pushing them off? I mean, like we just we we gloss over scripture. We fail to put ourselves into the mental and emotional state of the people there, and we just read it like it's words on a page. No, 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 no. This woman put her kid, her baby, into a basket, three, four months old, and pushes him off. Can you imagine? I mean, it's absolute. It's absolute crazy. Crocodiles, snakes, and everything else that lives in the Nile River Delta. And then little Miriam runs out. Shall I get a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. So Moses' mother comes back. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Will you nurse this child for a couple years and take care of him, and I'll pay you? Is this God's redemption? 
I mean, Moses' mom knew, I think, supernaturally from the moment when they said that this was a fair child or a beautiful child. Moses' mom knew that there was something special about this little baby. And she probably knew that because there was something special about this little baby, she was going to have to give this baby up to God, Yahweh, God. And that God gave this baby back to her for a couple of years is absolutely beautiful to me. I think you get to see the heart of God for us. Make application in your own life across the board. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, we don't know if that was one year, three years, no idea. But when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. So she became Pharaoh's, or excuse me, um, Pharaoh's daughter's son. So what does that make Moses? Yeah, grandson of Pharaoh, the guy who ordered genocide, the guy who ordered all the male babies to be. I've always wondered what must it have been like the first time, uh, you know, the princess, the, the Pharaoh's daughter, went walking into the presence of Pharaoh with, and one look at the baby, and what do we know? Jewish. Jewish. Hebrew baby. Not a chance this baby is, is Egyptian. But somehow Pharaoh's daughter hoodwinked the whole thing and raised this little guy. What faith? Let's take note of that. If there's an area in your life where God's given you a promise and he's called you to carry something or do something or step out, do it. Take the risk. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let's park there for just a second. So Moses is drawn out of the water. God actually uh, draws Moses out of himself into his calling. Moses is then sent back to Egypt. We're going to read about this in a few minutes. But who does he draw out? Somebody's got it. The Israelites, he draws the people out. And the people, so the people of God, so Moses is drawn out and he literally becomes a person who draws out his people. He, he fulfills his name. And it's amazing to me that God uses someone who doesn't even revere God or, or love or respect God, certainly has no sense of Yahweh, to name him his namesake. I mean, she named him according uh, to the purpose, plan, and call God had in his life. Don't tell me our God is not sovereign and bigger than all of our situations and that he can't use every single one of us, believers and non-believers alike, to accomplish his will and his purpose on the earth. He can and he will. Even when we don't like it, I assure you Moses' mama did not like it a lot of days. Is that fair? Mamas? Yes. Yes. Verse 11, there's so much that Acts and Hebrews says um, about Moses as he grew up. Um, there's a lot that, that is there that is not actually written here, and the two don't conflict. Um, but what you get from Acts and from Hebrews is this sense that Moses was raised um, with all of the riches and all of the grandeur of Egypt. You get the sense that he was educated in the finest schools. Uh, Egypt was the superpower on earth at this time, so he's got the finest of foods, he's got the finest of education, he's got the finest of experiences, he's got the absolute best of the best. Uh, in, in fact, one of the things I was looking at or studying is, um, have you, has anybody ever been to Central Park in New York and seen Cleopatra's needle. You know what I'm talking about? 
Has anybody been to the bank of the, it's the Thames River, I think pronounced Thames or Thames or something like that, and, and seen Cleopatra's needle there? Anybody? Anybody? Not a one? Well, okay, let me tell you real quick about You've been there? Oh, I'm so glad. Okay, we got one in our audience. Okay, great. So in uh, uh, Helopolis, in Egypt, um, there was a, a, a place of learning, and entrance to the place of learning um, was, was guarded or set by two obelisks, which were called, today are called Cleopatra's Needles. There's two of them. One of them was taken to London. One of them was taken to Central Park, New York. But Moses would have actually walked between those two obelisks every day as he got his Egyptian education. So it's fascinating to me that you can go to Central Park and you can actually go and stand and touch the thing that Moses walked through. Actually go and see it for yourself, look at it, because it's where Moses would have crossed through every single day as he got his education. But, but Moses was raised um, probably to be the darling of Egypt. I mean, he, it is even possible, um, it's arguable, there's different takes on this, but it's even possible that he could have been favored of Pharaoh to be the next one to take the throne. I mean, there is so much about um, how loved and how treasured and how favored and how much power and Moses the general. and Mo it, it kind of goes on and on. So this, this sense of who Moses is it, it sort of instills, I think, and before we read verse 11, you've got to understand that Moses um, is convinced that he walks into a room and what's everybody do? They stop what they're doing. They probably bow before him. So Moses is used to commanding all of Egypt. He's used to commanding all of the armies. He's used to commanding all of the people. He's this beautiful, handsome man, and everyone loves Moses, right? So let's read what happens in verse 11. So we're, we're um, looking, we're, we're transitioning here from the Moses who thought he was a somebody to Moses, the man who was learning he was a nobody. This is so key. This is so key. If there's a pattern to how God uh, uses and selects and trains a, a man or a woman or a young person, this is it. Because until you are full well convinced that you're a nobody, God cannot make you a somebody. Until you come to the point where you go, I am absolutely bankrupt in of myself, I cannot do this, uh, the power of God cannot work in and through your life. So at this point, Moses thinks he's a Somebody. There you go. You're with me. All right. Verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, so he's 40 is what Hebrews tells us at this point. He went out. Moses lived to be 120, by the way, and 40 and 40 and 40 is what? 120. So the first 40 years Moses spent learning that he was a? Oh, he thought he was a, thank you, somebody. The second 40 years he spent learning that he was a? Nobody. And the third 40 years he literally got to walk out what God can do with a nobody. Do you feel like a nobody today? Anybody? Anybody courageous enough to go, I feel like a nobody? Come on, let me see a hand. Let me, come, on, come on, come on. I feel like a nobody. Come on. Anybody feel like a nobody? Listen to me. King Jesus is looking for an army of nobodies. Because when you come before him with a big old ego and you think you're really something special, guess what? He is just waiting to cut you down because it is not about you and it is not about me and it is not about what you can do or you think you can do. It is about him in us and through every one of us. That is what he's after. And when you meet people who have walked down a broken road, those are the people who you go, hold on, wait and watch because the power and presence of God can use this person. I'm not looking for a church full of perfectly polished people. I'd rather have an army of nobodies. Yeah? Okay. 
One day after Moses had grown up, he's 40 years old, he went out where his own people were. There's indication in Hebrews that Moses had never even been to where the Hebrews were. He was so proud and he was so arrogant, he didn't care about them. He, he, he'd never even been down because he's a somebody. I'm Moses. I command the armies. I'm the prince of Egypt. So he goes out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. Now he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now remember, he's the darling of Egypt. Everybody loves Moses. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and he gets away with it. Verse 12, glancing this way and that and seeing no one, what did he do? Killed the Egyptian. And he buried him in the sand, dug a hole and buried the Egyptian. <clears throat> now, let's, let me read the next verse and then we'll pause. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me like you killed the Egyptian? Okay, so let's unpack this for just a minute. Uh, if there's a, um, if you've been in the Jesus journey a long time, I want you to hear this. This is really important. Moses has a supernatural imprint on who he is as a person that he is called to what? Come on. What? Deliver the people. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt. Why? Because when God creates a man or a woman, he impresses upon who they are a divine calling and purpose under heaven. Now, do you have to answer that divine calling and purpose? No, you are, have complete free will. Believe that? You have free will to say no to God. Now, God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he manages our free will like we see him doing with Moses. But uh, so, so Moses has impressed upon himself that he is called to deliver the people. And what's fascinating to me is at age 40, something begins to happen in Moses where he begins to go, oh my goodness, I've come from these Hebrew people. And so I better go back or I want to at least go out and explore um, what they're like. What are my, who are my people? Who, maybe my mom or maybe my dad. I'm not actually from here. So I want to go back and I want to see what this is like. And he gets there and he sees an Egyptian um, hurting one of his people. And what's he do? Now, is that his call? Okay, go a step deeper. Is it his call to deliver? Yes. So I would actually say to you, Moses is doing the right thing in the wrong way. Is he called to kill? No, I'm not really saying that. I'm saying he's called to deliver. And he, in his own arrogant 40-year-old self, where he thinks he knows it all, and he's got it all figured out, and he knows everything, and everybody bends their knee to Moses, because I'm the great Moses, right? He sees them, and he jumps up into his flesh. That's a New Testament word for our own sin. But he jumps up into his flesh, and he strikes out, and he kills this Egyptian. But I would say to you, he's acting out what he knows to be true about his life. And it's the first step that Moses actually takes um, to begin to defy Pharaoh and Egypt. And what Hebrews and Acts tells us is that he actually, he cast aside the riches of Egypt. He cast aside the luxury of Egypt. He cast aside, I mean, he would have his choice of anything and everything in Egypt. And he begins to cast it aside. And this is the first step that he begins to take to actually go, I am called to deliver my 
people. Now, God chose to raise his deliverer. He wanted his deliverer to be born in, in, uh, of the Hebrews, but actually raised in Pharaoh's court so he could speak to Pharaoh, so he could speak to kings and princes and leaders. So when you want to raise a leader and you're, the, the Israelites can't raise somebody like that, what do you do? Ship them off and have them raised elsewhere, trained elsewhere. It's amazing that God did that to me. But I am convinced that in this moment, Moses is acting out of a right imprint that is on his heart, and he's doing it in a sinful, fleshly way. Now, Christians, if you're a non-Christian in the house, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, no problem. You can just hang for a second. If you've been in the Jesus journey a long time, I am convinced that every one of us has impressed upon our very person a unique call from the Lord. And I'm also convinced that many of us spend many years trying to do what God has uh, truly called us to do in our own strength. Yeah, our own flesh. And it's not until we come to the place where we go, God, I recognize you've called me to this. I believe you've called me to this. I'm going to carry it by faith and I'm going to wait on you to accomplish it. He can't even use you until you get to that point. So what, though, sometimes we as Christians do is we get discouraged because we go, well, I thought this was God. I thought it was his call. I thought something great was going to happen. And look, I'm like 10 years down the road or 20 years down. Nothing's happened. I guess I was wrong. And what do we do? We cast it aside instead of just carrying it and go, Lord, I don't like the timing of this. I don't like the way this is unfolding. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't look good. It doesn't even sound good. But I choose to believe by faith that this is what you've called me to, and I'm just going to carry it. Now, uh, if you're a young person in the room, I've got good news for you. God's going to shape you, and he's going to break you, and then he's going to exalt you if you're willing to walk with him. If you're an older person in the room, I've got good news because Moses didn't even start his ministry until he was how old? 80. Remember, he lived to be 120 years. First 40 years he spent thinking he was a somebody. Second 40 years he spent learning that he was a Nobody in the third 40 years he spent in active ministry before God, learning what God can do with a? There you go. That's Exodus 2. You got it. Verse 14, the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptians? Isn't it amazing, too, that this man who spoke in verse 14, this would have been a Hebrew person, who made you ruler and judge over us? God did! You get that? I mean, God made Moses ruler and judge. It's just the timing wasn't yet. Moses doing the right thing in the wrong way at the wrong timing, which, guess what, is always the wrong thing. That's a bummer, isn't it? If you've walked with Jesus a while, you know that story. You'll probably write that book. Okay. Thank the Lord he brings it all back around. Then Moses was afraid and thought, what... I did, must have become known, so killing the Egyptian. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, let me pause here a second. In Exodus, it says Moses fled, he ran away. In Hebrews, it says Moses left by faith. Those are, they're not in conflict. If you've read those two passages, they are in no way conflicting if you look at the original language. What it's saying is Moses did flee from Pharaoh, but he fled by faith because Moses made a decisive decision to go, I am not going to be seduced by all the luxuries of Egypt. 
I am not going to be um, struck by my own popularity. I'm not going to be hung by my own greatness. I'm not going to seek after just being the next pharaoh or just being a great general or just having all this good knowledge. Or No, 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 no. I'm going to cast all of that aside for the sake of following a God I don't yet even know. This is this courageous decision that Moses makes. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled, and he sat down next to a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs of water um, for their father's flock. And some shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses came uh, to their rescue and watered their flock. Have you ever seen the movie um, Ten Commandments? Anybody? It's an old school movie. It's like this Charlton Heston. Um, my sister watched it like 700 times growing up. I, mean, I kid you not. I wish she was here. She'd laugh at me. Um, but there's this great scene in there where Moses, um, he, the, the girls actually say he uh, walks like a prince and fights like a warrior, and he sets them free from, from these guys, and literally they were acting out the, the scripture here. Uh, when the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early? And the girls answered, an Egyptian. Now look, Moses doesn't even look, go here a second, he doesn't even look Hebrew anymore. He has so shed his past. These girls think he's an Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian. He dresses like Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. He's been educated like an Egyptian. So it's like when he tries to even set, to go back to the Hebrews fighting, when he tries to uh, intervene on their behalf, they're going, you're not one of us. You don't look like us. You don't sound like us. You don't talk like us. Verse 19, the girls answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water and he watered our flocks. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Moses is learning he's a... Come on, let's do that again. Moses is learning he's a... During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So what the, um, Moses actually authored this, but what he's teeing up is what's going to happen in chapter 3, which we'll look at next week. So Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a? He spent 40 years learning he was a? And then he spent the next 40 years learning what God can do with a... Come on. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Moses is writing it. Deuteronomy 18.15. God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Who's Moses talking about? Who rejected the wealth of heaven to come to earth in the form of a helpless little baby. Who was a carpenter and worked with their hands? Who lived in the desert and learned to be a shepherd? Who forsook all of the heavenly armies, stood at attention before King Jesus, and he laid it all aside. He despised it all so that he could come and lead his people in the ultimate exodus. Every time I look at Moses, I see King Jesus. Moses looked at the riches 
of Egypt. And he went, I am not interested. He had everything. You name it, he had it. Access to everything. And he cast it all aside by faith because he believed that God had something better. The Jesus that I know, the Jesus that this Bible testifies about is one who is a the new Moses who came to lead us from slavery through the transition of the land between the promise of the desert land and into the promised land. If you're here today and you feel like a nobody, I've got good news for you. You might be ready for God to begin to use. If you're here today and you feel like a somebody, I've got news for you. You've got a journey ahead of you. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am really glad that you pick nobodies. Father, I'm glad that you are the one who can exalt a person, but before you exalt a person, you always bring them down. Father, if we're honest, in the deep recesses of almost every one of our hearts, we feel like nobodies. Father, we cover it with acting like we're somebody's, acting important, dressing important. But Father, the truth of the matter is most of us feel like we're a nobody. And Father, I pray over this house, over this congregation, over this people, that Lord Jesus, you would work deep within our hearts, that you left the abundance of heaven, all of the riches, all of the glory, so that you could come to earth as a babe, Grow up, face every temptation we faced, ultimately go to a cross and beat death, beat hell, rise from the dead so that we could live. And Father, I pray that you would take this church on this day, and Lord, would you take a group of nobodies, and Father, would you teach us what you can do with somebody who is low in their own eyes somebody who is low in their own estimation. And Father, would you speak to every one of our hearts that you've got a purpose, you've got a plan, you've got a call. Father, I know there's someone or someone's in this room who has been striving to reach the call, to fulfill the purpose. And I think you're inviting them to just open their hands and rest and wait because you're not done with them yet. Father, as we go from this place, can we know you as the God who gives it all, pays it all, leaves it all to come after us, to find us, to love us, and to lead us into wholeness. Holy Spirit, would you descend on your people today? Would you fill us afresh? If there's someone in the room who's never given your heart to King Jesus, I'd love to talk to you or pray with you. I'll be right up here afterwards. But as you go today, would you go recognizing that the path to greatness in the kingdom is laying it down in surrender, opening your hands in submission, and simply saying, Lord Jesus, here I am. Send me.